of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this month, January 2021, we take a deep dive into the topic of animal welfare assessments on pause. And therefore, today, I'm delighted to welcome Amanda Embury, who is the Senior Manager of Animal Welfare and Life Sciences in the Department of Wildlife Conservation and Science at Zeus Victoria in Australia. Welcome, Amanda. Hi, Sabrina. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, I'm delighted that we're having this podcast, this conversation. It's been almost eight years ago that we met at a zoo husbandry and enrichment and training seminar at the Auhans Deer Park in the Netherlands. And you know, we've had so many different conversations and we met at the ZAR conference in Wellington, New Zealand. And it's, it's really wonderful how, you know, over the years we have stayed in contact and uh, really delighted to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Sabrina. Yeah, it has been an interesting journey and it's great to have that connection with you and, you know, sharing our approaches and thinking around animal welfare, especially, I think, moving into that space of, of thinking around um, the, as you know, the 24 seven approach to animal care and just how we can apply that in looking after animals. But I'm looking forward to talking lots about animal welfare over the next little while. Yes, me too. So can you start with a short introduction to yourself? Like, how did you get into zoos? Uh, what did you study? There's quite a few people listening, especially also students or people who are in different phases of the career. And they're always interested mm -hmm. to hear how others uh, got into their career and working in zoos. Sure, Sabrina. Okay, so as you said, I work for Zoos Victoria in Australia, which is based in the city of Melbourne. And really quickly, Zoos Victoria has three zoos. Melbourne Zoo, which is an urban zoo in, in the city that displays both exotic animals and Australian native species. Um, Hillswell Sanctuary, which is a little bit outside of the city of Melbourne that displays Australian native species. And then Werribee Open Range Zoo, which has an emphasis on savanna species and also Australian native species. And of course, all of our zoos are working with, we have a list of 27 priority threatened species that we're involved with recovery programs for those species. So that's just setting some context of where I fit in. I work in the Department of Wildlife Conservation and Science that provides oversight and strategic directions for our three zoos as far as animal care goes. So that includes animal welfare, enrichment, animal behaviour and species planning and management. So I've been working there for probably 38 years now. And my background, originally I studied zoology 
but before that I can remember visiting Melbourne Zoo. I was probably about five or six years old watching some animals in yeah what you'd call concrete cages that seemed quite barren and I thought then and there I'd love to work at the zoo one day and help make life better for the animals. So my dreams come true, that's my job and that's what I'm doing. So how have I got to where I am now? As I said, I started doing zoology um, with an emphasis on animal behaviour. I did an honest project looking at gibbon behaviour, comparing the behaviour of gibbons in zoos with gibbons in the wild. Now, I'll be upfront and say that I didn't actually do any field studies. I just did the literature reviews and made use of those published documents to compare with my results of observing gibbons in zoos. And I guess that showed me those differences between the behaviours of animals in zoos and the behaviour of animals in the wild, which has kind of led to that interest in enrichment and animal behaviour management. I've been lucky enough to go to um, a few of the world enrichment conferences, including the first world conference on environmental enrichment with people like David Shepherdson and Jill Mellon being present and being able to see and meet these people whose papers I've heard, um, meeting various other people who've been really, I guess, pioneers in some way in zoo exhibit design to provide for animal behaviours, people like Perry Maple and John Coe, you know, just gain all those networks that we create that help to further our careers. So then at Zoo Victoria, I actually started doing the animal records and my, I've had various roles at Zoo Victoria over the years. So I've worked um, with the life sciences team. I've worked in major projects helping to design exhibits. I've worked with um, the wildlife conservation and science team. Um, so, you know, it's been, and I've also worked in, with the visitor experiences team, thinking about how we create those experiences for visitors and the messages that visitors take away after visiting the zoo. So it's been quite, uh, you know, varied career and as well as that interest in animal behaviour and enrichment, I've also got a big interest in species management and species planning. So within our region, we have the Zoo and Aquarium Association, um, also called ZAR, and ZAR provides oversight for species management programs for zoos in Australia, New Zealand, and a couple of other countries in the Oceania region. And I actually head up the animal management committee that, that facilitates those programs. I happen to be a species coordinator for several species, including cotton-top tamarins, orangutans, and Asian elephants. And I'm also a taxon advisory um, group convener for primates. So I've got my finger in a lot of pies. I like to think of myself as dabbling in lots of things and being more a facilitator rather than particularly a subject matter expert. So that's kind of a bit of a background about my career um, and the sort of degrees that I've had. One other thing that I was going to mention is at Zoos Victoria, we're, we're what we call um, a lean organisation. So we adopt the principles of lean, which 
is a philosophy that's used by a lot of organisations, especially manufacturing organisations, about how to get the most value out of what we're doing and to make sure that the work that we're doing is providing value and that we're continuously improving. So some of those principles of lean really align nicely with our approach to animal welfare, that we're wanting to con um, continuously improve what we're doing. Sorry. Wonderful, that's really impressive. Yeah, great. And really looking forward also to hearing more about this continuing improvement. And, and I really like how you talk about all these, you know, like you say, you have your finger in a lot of pies, but also <laughs> this facilitating, this connecting, this really, you know, looking at all these different aspects and how they fit uh, together or how we can help each other and move things forward. And and I also very much appreciated your mention with regards to, you know, wanting to make things better for animals, because, of course, animal welfare is about the now and not about necessarily our ideals or how things could be. But this idea of, you know, going to work in a zoo and making things better and changing it from the inside out. I think that's just such a really important point and beautiful, beautiful uh, calling. Yeah. Another aspect too of that, Sabrina, is when we think about it, the motivation for many people who work in zoos, especially those people who are providing care for the animals, is that love of animals and that wanting to do the very best that we can for the animals in our care. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's how I, you know, also got into this job, you know, 30 years ago, I, I wanted to work with animals, mm -hmm. work for them, um, you know, just that connection and caring for them and loving them and doing the best we can. So yeah, I completely that totally resonates with me. Can you talk a little bit more about what, you know, important roles animal care professionals have um, you know, not only like caring for animals, but also in the light of animal welfare assessments, for example. Okay, I was going to just think back a little bit. I'm reminded, Sabrina, of um, recently I caught up with my first manager when I started at Melbourne Zoo um, to celebrate his 80th birthday. So as you, you might imagine, there were quite a number of people there who had worked at Melbourne Zoo in like the 1950s, 1960s, even earlier. And just hearing about their experiences and approaches to animal welfare and some of the things that they encountered. You know, when we think about that animal welfare science is relatively new but those people who have been working with animals has been, have been thinking about improving lives of animals for all those years and have you know an immense wealth of knowledge and just hearing some of the things that were considered kind of innovations like convincing management to spend money on getting fresh food to feed the animals rather than just getting the seconds that were left over at the end of the day from markets. So it just really um, makes you realise the changes that have happened in the way that we care for animals and some of those in incredible 
um, innovations that to us, we take them just for granted, but have forgotten the hard work that's gone on before us to achieve some of the animal welfare outcomes that we have today. So I guess the, the point that I'm making here is that often the people who are working with the animals are the ones who tend to know them the best and have a, a really good understanding of um, what the needs for those individual animals are. And so we come to that challenge when we're wanting to implement something like animal welfare assessments of making sure that we involve and empower the people who are working with the animals to be part of that process and to make their opinions valued and heard. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's so important to, you know, continue to talk to all kinds of people that have been in the field uh, in different professions for a number of amount of years, whether it's for a very long time or just, you know, new in the field to really, you know, get a good understanding also of like knowledge, but also on what have, you know, what are you seeing, feeling, how do you know the things you know, so that we can use those uh, not only for trying to gain insights in what the animals are experiencing, but also as stepping stones or possible ideas for uh, systematic research, right? So how do we turn what we know um, into you know, data um, and what type of data will that then be? So how do we can make evidence-based decisions on what we think uh, or feel the animals uh, are experiencing, but zookeepers, and of course there have been some wonderful papers published on that, and we can link to those uh, with the podcast as well, on you know the importance of the knowledge of care staff uh, in gaining insights in the well-being of animals. So yeah, it's, it's so important. Um, and, and Amanda, can you talk a little bit more about what some of these different roles are that uh, animal care professionals have in the care for animals? Okay, um, so maybe I'll talk about how we've come to develop our animal welfare assessment process at SUS Victoria. And um, I know that as part of your your pause platform later in the month that you'll be talking to two of my colleagues Yinch and Hannah Larson around what we've done with the data that we've gathered through our animal welfare surveys and how we're using that information. So I'll leave them to talk more about that because they will do it much more effectively than I will. But I might launch into how we came to develop our animal welfare um, assessment and just start talking about that journey. How does that sound? Wonderful. That would be great. Absolutely. Okay. So to set the scene, I thought just to set the scene, it's probably worthwhile really quickly talking about our code of animal welfare and ethics that we have at Sue's Victoria. So we have, as I just said, a code of animal welfare and ethics that's based on three guiding principles, justified, humane and effective. So that really nicely sets the scene for our overall approach. So when we talk about justified, what we want to do there is to say that everything that we do, 
we justify it because in some way it's contributing to conservation outcomes. So those conservation outcomes that could be through our work with recovery programs for threatened species, or it might be through behaviour change campaigns to encourage the community to take actions that support conservation outcomes. So that's the first thing. If we can't justify something, then we shouldn't be doing it. Then the second one is humane. So everything that we do needs to be humane. So ideally, animals that are in our care at Zoo Victoria need to predominantly experience positive animal welfare states. And then thirdly, effective. So we need to continuously assess and monitor what we're doing to see if we're reaching goals or to see if our programs are working in the way that we hope they do. So that's why we need to have assessments like our animal welfare survey. So that's just kind of setting the scene. We've got an overarching code that has those guiding principles. Then we have various policies that support the code and then there are procedures sitting under that. So that's just a quick snapshot of the framework in which we operate. So then we come to Zoos Victoria's animal welfare assessment, which is the um, sorry, I'll start again. Zoos Victoria's animal welfare assessment is the basis of what I'm talking about today. And rather than going into details of how we do the assessment, I just wanted to share our journey and the learning from our journey. So I'll do a little bit of a chronological sequence of events because that kind of provides its best way of ordering things. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the learning outcomes that we've found from that. So our animal welfare survey, we developed that in 2011. So this year marks 10 years of doing it. And the animal welfare assessment or animal welfare survey, if I might interchange those two words, we call it the animal welfare survey, but it is effectively an animal welfare assessment is one of the tools that we have in our animal welfare toolbox. So we have other things that we do to help us understand likely animal welfare states or risk to animal welfares. So other things that we do as well as the formal animal welfare survey include weekly briefing advices to various managers about any particular events or incidents that might um, reflect compromised animal welfare or potentially compromised animal welfare. We um, have an animal welfare investigation process and things like quality of life assessments for aged or geriatric animals. That's just a snapshot of some of the tools that we use to help us assess animal welfare, as well as our more formal research programs. So focusing on the animal welfare survey, which commenced in 2011, um, initially that comprised 20 questions. And those 20 questions were pretty much based around the five freedoms. So um, keepers were asked to assess animals in various enclosures and to give a grading of either there was a major concern around animal welfare, a minor concern around animal welfare, or no concern around animal welfare. And the way that the animal welfare survey 
was worded and I guess the way that it operated initially, the intent was to fix what was wrong or to fix things that were broken. So life sciences staff from all three properties were invited to complete the animal welfare survey and this was an optional exercise. So as you might anticipate in the first year, um, you know, we had a small number of animal welfare surveys being completed. And we found that what might happen is say, on the carnivore team or the primate team or whichever team it was, ectoderm team, that there was one keeper who went and completed, you know, five, 10 surveys and returned them. And there may not have been a whole lot of consultation with other people on the team. Then once we had those completed surveys, what happened was we collated all of the information and then the senior life science managers from each property and myself from Wildlife Conservation and Science, we got together and we went through the, the data and we identified what we thought were the priorities that needed to be fixed. And then um, we had a budget within wildlife conservation and science. So there was a certain amount of money that could be um, dedicated to those animal welfare interventions. So after the surveys were completed, you know, this small panel got together and picked three or four projects, ideally a project at each property, and we would progress that project. So what happened then was that it demonstrated that you know, there was money available and that there was going to be an outcome as far as improving animal welfare. So doing completing the animal welfare survey was not necessarily a waste of time. Something happened with that information and keepers could see some benefits from completing the surveys. So I think you know, we started off small and we were able to deliver some quick wins. Then over time, lots of things happened. For one, probably a, a key milestone was David Miller's um, pub publication around the five domains, with the five domains approach now being, I guess, the most you know, used approach for animal welfare risk assessments. So we've adopted that approach to our animal welfare survey. And rather than emphasizing or focusing on what's broken and needs fixing, we're, we're now focusing on what things can we do better. Yet we might identify some things that we say there's a risk of negative animal welfare, um, but still if, if something is classified as positive, there's also that opportunity to still improve. So now we've moved from having the assessments as major concern minor concern or no concern around animal welfare, we've moved to thinking about animal likely animal welfare state. So the assessment is either negative, neutral or positive in line with David Miller's thinking. Thank you, Amanda. So, before before yeah. we move on to um, more, because oh, there's so many wonderful, um, you know, lessons also here about, you know, like you say, 
um, having a, a code, having a structure where you base your decisions on, on how you do things, why you do the things you do, and, and this continuing approve, improvement that you mentioned to earlier. And also, you know, about starting small and, you know, looking mm -hmm. at the chronological, you know, how things have developed. And, and that's just really wonderful because a lot of people who are working in facilities, they might, and they might not have these programs in place. There's so many valuable lessons here on, you know, what could be some of your first steps? How do you start? And because often, you know, just like maybe seeing an enrichment program in place or a publication or, you know, a finished behavior trained by an animal, it's often the process, right? That we are interested in and how did they get there? And I think it's really wonderful that you're, you know, taking us through some of the steps that you have taken over the years and decades, uh, probably on, you know, how you got to where you got today. And, and also, could you talk a little bit more about, you know, some people might not be familiar with the five domains model uh, from Professor Miller. Could you talk a little bit about what that model is? I'll talk really, really quickly. <laughs> so, um, as Professor Miller's model of the five domains for animal welfare. Obviously, as it says, five domains. So there are the four physical domains for animal welfare, which is environment, which is the housing of animals, um, nutrition, so the feeding of animals, physical health, then behaviour. So they're the four physical domains. And then the fifth domain is affective state, or the psychological well-being of animals. So in um, doing our animal welfare survey, obviously we can only assess those things that we can see evidence of. So um, we'll do things like we will look at environment, the housing of the animals, thinking about size of the housing of animals. We will look at behaviour and social opportunities. We have combined physical health and nutrition together. And we've also um, consider relationship between animals and humans. So I'll share two little examples um, of some outcomes. Now, just to provide the context, over time, what we've done, um, we have moved from making uh, animal welfare survey, which happens annually, We've shifted from making this an optional exercise to making it a mandatory or compulsory exercise. We've also shifted from just having one person going off and completing the surveys on behalf of the teams that we complete the surveys as kind of panel discussion. Um, and during that panel discussion, we'll have a vet present We'll have our animal welfare specialists present. We'll have the keepers from the relevant teams. Usually we'll try and have the senior life sciences manager from that section present. And, you know, other people are welcome to attend to just hear the discussions and understand what we talk about in during the animal welfare surveys. So I thought I'd share two examples of how and the animal welfare surveys not only provide that kind of snapshot or point in time 
of what we think might be the risk to animal welfare at Sue's Victoria. But it's an opportunity for staff to really just think about how um, animal care practices might affect animal welfare. It's also an opportunity for dialogue and learning and definitely an opportunity to build those capabilities and understanding of that five domains approach to animal welfare. So the two examples, one relates to animal housing. There's a question on the animal welfare survey which relates to size of an exhibit and does the size of an exhibit or the size of the housing provide adequate space for a species to engage in species appropriate behaviours. So I was at one session that involved um, keepers and we were assessing some aviaries for birds. And so, you know, we got to that question and the keepers kind of said, yep, yeah, I, I think this is positive because the aviary exceeds the minimum standards required for this species. So um, for those who are not in Victoria or in Australia, we have um, systems here where we have minimum requirements um, under various government legislation. It varies depending on what part of Australia that you're in that might specify the minimum size required for an animal enclosure. So, uh, you know, there, there'd been this thinking that, yep, this exhibit is bigger than minimum requirements, so the likely welfare state of the animals is positive. So then if you ask the question slightly differently to the keepers is, um, you know, what do birds do? <laughs> Fly. And then thinking about the size of the enclosure, how much capacity for long flight does this facility provide for the birds? And then after that discussion, there was agreement that hmm, it's probably neutral and not positive. So the point that I'm making here is through that dialogue that there's that self-realisation that something that people believed was good possibly has some shortcomings. So I think it was really trying to move away from Yep, we've exceeded minimum standards, so we're doing a good job, to actually thinking about what's the natural history of this species, what's typical behaviours of this species, and are we providing for those behaviours through our housing? So I'm just flipping the way that we approach things, which was really cool to see. Then another example... Sorry, um, that you're, you know, showing, you know, this importance of teamwork, you know, working together, yeah. discussing it. And also, you know, I hear you, you know, also talk about obviously looking at, you know, what are animals doing in the wild uh, and also yeah. common sense in a certain to a certain extent. Right. Uh, just like when mm -hmm. we have animals that live in trees, but then we actually don't have a lot of trees like structures or branch like structure. Yeah. It's kind of going through, okay, so who are these animals? You know, how have they have evolved? What are, you know, the, the, the ways of living and are we providing mm -hmm. for those? And I think it's such a important aspect to go through and I'm really glad you're, yeah. you know, highlighting uh, this importance of, you know, going through that process and going through that process together. So thank you for sharing uh, that story. 
I've got one other story, which I like. like it's kind of yes, we love animal stories. Yeah. <laughs> and this this one was relating to um, human animal relationships. So we there's a question about yeah, what do you think the relationship is between these animals and and the keepers? And you know, again, it just shows that keepers. We know that keepers have a lot to do. And um, particularly sometimes keepers might work different rosters. So they don't necessarily see each other every day. They don't necessarily have discussions every day. So this one relates to white cheek gibbons and in particular a female white cheek gibbon at Melbourne Zoo. And what's the relationship that these gibbons and in particular this female gibbon has with keepers? So kind of half the people in the room went, yeah, yeah, it's really good. She's really calm, you know, has a great relationship with keepers. And then the other half are kind of looking, going, what? Well, you know, if I go near the enclosure, she'll display or, or start, you know, potentially slamming the, the window or making vocalisations. So clearly um, this particular individual animal, and it's not just the white cheek human, there's been a couple of other examples like this, responds differently to different keepers. So, you know, some of the staff thought that the animal had a really positive relationship with keepers, and some of the staff thought that perhaps the relationship with keepers was not that great. And of course, they're all correct because their experience is different, you know, everyone's an individual and and these animals have um, varied responses to individual carers. Um, and then it's quite interesting too, with this particular female white cheek gibbon, tends to have a less positive relationship with people who have blonde hair. So interesting. Those are the kind of things that we've managed to tease out through having this dialogue and these discussions as part of the animal welfare survey. Yeah incredibly enriching and rewarding and just finding all these little gems that help to understand what's happening in the way that we're providing care to our animals. Yes, absolutely. And as you say, it's also, it's enriching because we are, you know, as animal care professionals, always striving to do the best for animals and understand them. And it's also enriching for us, right, to do this, <laughs> Uh, to work together, to have these conversations, to learn and to act for animals, right? Because that is such a key point, mm -hmm. um, because that's also why we got into this job. We want to make a difference and to be able to do that is so enriching Absolutely. to us as people, right? Um, I'm really yeah. glad. And, and the other thing that I also picked up, um, you really also talk about, you know, these ongoing, right? So you have these surveys, these assessments mm -hmm. that you're doing, but... Um, Throughout the year, you know, on a weekly basis, you know, there's lots of check-ins and seeing, you know, what we are doing. So it's not just something you just do once a year, but you are really, you know, this is kind of part of the weekly, daily, obviously, obviously keepers, care staff are every day looking at the animals, but you have a system in place, a process in place to really make this happen. Um, so can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about that on um, maybe... How do you overcome some of the challenges that like care staff don't always see each other or, you know, veterinarians and curators mm -hmm. and care staff don't always meet. So how, how do you facilitate that in your um, facility? Okay. 
couple of other things. Um, we noticed too with the, in the earlier days with the animal welfare survey that sometimes keepers were reporting quite little things that, or sorry, they were reporting animal welfare concerns that could have been fixed up really quickly if managers had known about them. I don't know, um, I can't think of a specific example at the moment. But what that told us was we didn't actually have a process for our life sciences or staff or keepers to be able to report animal welfare concerns. So to support our animal welfare survey, we also have a process whereby people can report animal welfare concerns. Um, most of our um, life sciences teams, so like, you know, they're the different teams that look after the animals at Zoos Victoria, have what we call visual management boards. And the visual management boards links back to us being a lean organisation. So that they're a way of visually representing things. Um, so on our visual management boards, most teams have a bit of a chart where they can capture any animal welfare concerns that people have raised. And then that will also um, identify what interventions are going to take place and have a time frame for completing that intervention and also assign the task to someone. So that way we can keep things front of mind. They're up there in the office or the meeting room so that things don't become lost in a chain of emails or at the bottom of an inbox. They're up there on the wall so that people can keep track of them. I guess the other things that we've done, um, we keep continuing to evolve and um, to develop more ways of supporting those animal welfare outcomes. So, you know, as, as we all, can I say, as we all know, <laughs> another thing that we're implementing at Sue's Victoria's is that emphasis on choice for animals. So things like voluntary participation in healthcare programs. So in order to facilitate that, animal training is critical. So in order to provide um, training for staff in animal training, we actually have engaged animal training coordinators. So we have an animal training coordinator at each of our zoos and the animal training coordinators or ATCs as we affectionately call them, have that role of being, I guess, effectively the coach who coaches the keepers in completing animal training or designing training programs for our animals. And then um, providing oversight for the animal training coordinators, we now have an animal behavior specialist so that's Su Yench who sits in my team within Wildlife Conservation and Sciences. Sue's role is not only involved with the animal training coordinators, but also trying to um, address some of the abnormal repetitive behaviours that we might find with animals at, at Zoo's Victoria. So, starting to roll out functional assessments so that we can encourage desired behaviours rather than those behaviours that we may want to see reducing frequency. So that's, that's one thing is just 
trying to develop those processes so that staff can feel comfortable about um, reporting an animal welfare concern if they feel there is one and that there's a mechanism to make sure those concerns are captured and that interventions occur. And then just constantly responding to that changing need of the organisation. So if there is a need to develop capability to make sure that we have those resources to do that. So, you know, um, creating those roles for animal training coordinators or animal behaviour specialists. Yes, and that's wonderful because of course, you know, the uh, as an animal caregiver, an animal care professional, you have a lot of different responsibilities. You need to be able to do a lot of different things. But of course, as you already mentioned also at the beginning, we can't be subject matter experts in everything. So it's so wonderful that you then have, you know, people or teams who really, you know, take a deep dive and they are really specialized in a certain topic and that then can help support everybody else uh, because yeah it would be impossible to be good at everything right and this is why it's so important we work together and we have these support systems that you're talking about that's wonderful can you talk a little bit more also about you know the the end part of if you like the the welfare assessment you know the outcomes and how you go over the the 12 months um, a little bit of that section uh, with regards to animal welfare assessments. Okay, so what happens now with our animal welfare surveys, and I'll keep this fairly brief because I know Hannah and Sue will be talking about this in more detail, but when we do our an annual animal welfare surveys now, um, we identify those species or enclosures that we feel are at risk of negative animal welfare. So I guess I always like to try and say that the animal welfare assessments are a little bit like, you know, many people are familiar with hazard assessments for staff in the workplace. So as an example, if you've got some of pathway that might have a tripping hazard. It doesn't mean that everyone who's walking around the zoo has a fractured leg, but there is potential that you could trip and fall and fracture your leg. So we just like to keep re-emphasizing that whilst there might be risks of negative animal welfare, it doesn't necessarily mean that the animals are in a negative animal welfare state. So to make that clear. So what we do, those animals that have the negative score, um, we identify countermeasures that, well, countermeasures is another word for interventions that need to be delivered within 12 months. And we have each property commit to delivering those interventions. And on a monthly basis, we um, report back the proportion of interventions that has occurred each month to make sure that we're on track and we're um, actually achieving what we said we were going to do. So I guess one of the things that we need to be mindful of, however, is you might assess a particular enclosure and identify various interventions that you're going to implement. And then you complete all of that work 
and then we come along 12 months later, run the animal welfare survey again, and you might find that the assessment continues to remain negative, which can be quite frustrating for people, both for the animal carers who are involved and potentially for the director who has allocated, you know, in some instances, significant financial resources to implementing animal welfare interventions, and then to find that there hasn't actually been a shift in um, the likely welfare state of the animals. And there might be several reasons for that. Um, sometimes it could be that there's been a change in the situation with, for that species. So it might be that this year when we assess the animals, you know, they're adults, next year when we assess the animals, there might be a couple of geriatric individuals and so they've got changed welfare requirements, which means that additional interventions are required. Or it could be that the intervention just didn't achieve what we hoped it might. So we might sort of say that there needs to be more shelter within an enclosure, say to provide more shade. We create a new shade structure and then for some reason the animals don't use it. So it hasn't actually achieved the outcome that we hoped. So, um, you know, I, I guess the point that I'm making here is that in some ways what we're doing is innovative and when you're in that space of innovation, there's not always guarantees that things that you try are going to work. So, you know, we're quite lucky in, in that fact that there is support to try things and if they don't work, you know, let's assess them and find out whether they work or not. So at least we know whether they have worked or not rather than just going, oh yeah, we've done that, end of story. And we may not actually have achieved the outcomes that we want. So again, it's going back to that effective, the principles of effective um, for our approach to animal welfare is to keep checking in, keep monitoring and just work out what's going on and if things didn't quite work out as planned, then let's revisit it, change it and um, adjust things and then reassess. So going back to that, again, that, that lean principle and continuous improvement, it's a never ending journey. There'll always be something that we can do better, something that we can improve on. And just acknowledging too that animals, whether it's an individual animal or species, their needs are constantly changing or as animal welfare science evolves or our knowledge of particular species changes. Um, I'm just reflecting, Sabrina, on I was listening to one of your podcasts, I don't forget who the speaker was, talking about maned wolves and the approach to care for maned wolves and how yeah, that's Robert. Yeah, Robert, you know, we, we need to just keep checking in and adjusting things all the time. Yes, and I think, you know, you make such an important point here, and this is also what really needs to, you know, be clear in our minds is, you know, the care that we provide, all the different things that we do, the care efforts, as I started to call them, um, like you say, you know, providing more shade or, you know, a different type of diet, but then we have to go and check whether that is actually, you know, 
how do the animals experience that? Does it improve their health? Yeah. They start to, you know, so the welfare experience of the animal versus the care that we provide and keeping very clear. And as you say, going back and checking and, and mm -hmm. really making sure. And that, yes, yeah, sometimes we we try something and it, it's not exactly right. And maybe, you know, the, the shade needs to also have a little bit of a visual barrier because I don't know, there's some, you know, either um, another species or something else. Uh, so maybe just by adding a visual barrier and suddenly they start using the shade a lot, right? But it's this trial and error yeah. of trying to understand, mm -hmm. okay, so what is it exactly that is going to improve the well-being of the animals? So the well-being of the animals, their experience versus all the things that we do, all our care efforts. I, I think it's wonderful you sharing all these stories and the importance as you keep, you know, talking about your the code, the lean approach, and also this importance of continuous, you know, monitoring and and really looking at uh, mm -hmm. what are we doing. So that's just wonderful. Thank you so much um, for sharing those. And can you, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about the wildlife wellness workshop? Um, that's uh, yeah that uh, that <laughs> the is running because it's I think it's fabulous yeah. we've shared it so maybe you can you can talk a little bit about it here in the podcast too it's starting next okay. month yep all right what, what I thought I'd do Sabrina if that's okay um I think critical to um delivery of, of sound animal welfare outcomes for animals in zoos is to I'll start again the, the most valuable asset for want of a better word that we have as far as delivering animal welfare outcomes um, our life sciences staff or our animal keepers the front of line staff those people who are working with the animals on a daily basis they're our most valuable asset and if we're wanting uh life sciences teams to do the very best that they can for animals in their care, we need to keep building their capabilities. We need to um, give them opportunities to grow as, and as well as appreciating and valuing the work that they do. So another thing that we've done is- Absolutely. I, I want to like I want to echo this right away. I you know so often I hear you know um, people say, and I know I've said it myself also. Um, but you know we are just you know I'm just a keeper or I'm just a caregiver, and I'm like no, you're not the just. You know you're like the first in line. You're you know your animal's hero, right? And hero in the word of having strength for two you're you're caring for yourself but you're also caring for the for the other uh, the animal in your care right so and i think yeah absolutely you know we have to celebrate everybody mm -hmm. in the team and and so much so uh the people who are directly working with the animals um so thank you so much yeah. for for highlighting that absolutely yeah. so it's you know it's not good enough for me to know all about the five domains it's not good enough for our animal training coordinators to know all about animal training or for you know, our animal welfare specialists to know all about animal welfare assessment approaches. We need to make sure we share that information and build those skills right across our life sciences teams. So what we've been doing, we've, we've tried to, before we, we 
um, have the annual animal welfare surveys, we might run workshops um, to help build capabilities and just to motivate people and get them inspired about animal welfare. So when we come to do the animal welfare surveys, there is that buzz <laughs> and everyone's really keen to do the best that they can. And we've done things as well, like um, making use of, of your workshops around that 24-7 approach. So again, that realisation that it's not just what happens whilst life sciences staff are on site between 7.30am and 5pm, but that whole need to develop the 24-hour approach to animal care. So we've, we've run quite a lot of training workshops um, in animal welfare and approaches to animal welfare for our staff at Zoos Victoria. And we now have a commercial product available um, with an animal welfare's principles masterclass scheduled for February. Um, and if you go online, if you look for LEAP, L-E-A-P, Zoos Victoria LEAP, and wildlife wellness, you can get information about those workshops. Absolutely. So Hannah Larson, Dr. Hannah Larson, our animal welfare specialist, takes people right through that whole approach around how we've developed the code of animal welfare and ethics, and also you know our approaches to animal welfare assessments and just things about you know assessing behaviors of animals. We have various people who contribute to the presentations. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll make definitely sure that uh, there will be a link to this uh, upcoming course. So uh, workshop, uh, which is very well also organized with regards to the time zone when we're talking about Europe. So uh, because yeah. of course people might think Australia, I'm going to be sleeping. Um, but uh, now it's actually uh, organized around also European time zone. So we'll definitely make a link available uh, yeah. there. And um, I really, I really think it's you know wonderful that you're talking about this you know, real integration of our job, right? Of continuing to learn, continuing to work together, continuing be building our skills and learning all these various <laughs> skills and capacities that we need to care for animals and how do we support each other. That's been really an echo through, through this whole podcast. I think that's wonderful. And, right. and uh, you know, um, could you maybe share a few of the learning outcomes uh, as we kind of enter the final phase in this podcast? Of course, we would love to hear, you know, what are some of the things you've learned over all this time that you have been uh, working together? Okay, so some specific learning outcomes as far as doing an animal welfare assessment, I think it's really good to have a phased approach um, and to take little steps, start off small, see how it goes, and then gradually build on things. Um, it's also really important to have stakeholder buy-in and to make people feel part of the process. Um, you know, we've really encouraged that self-assessment of animal welfare rather than just having independent people come in and go, oh, yeah, we think these animals are in a negative welfare state. And then people feel really, you know, that they're doing the wrong thing 
or that it's a reflection on their expertise when it's not. So I think it's really good to allow people to do self-assessment. Um, I think as well that move from having the emphasis on what can we do better rather than thinking about what's broken and need fixing has a lot more positive outcomes. You know, people are striving to do better and yeah, it's just a, a more pleasant way to approach things. Again, by saying, oh, this is broken and needs fixing, people are feeling that it's a criticism of their work when we know that life sciences staff and or animal keepers, they're doing the very best that they can. You know, often they're working extra hours or they're doing things in their own time or, you know, using their own resources to make enrichment or whatever it is. So we know that people are doing the best that they can. So we just want to highlight ways that we can support them to help improve things even more. Um, I think as well, if people are thinking about doing an animal welfare assessment or an animal welfare survey, it's absolutely critical to think about what are you going to do with that information and what are the expectations? So, you know, you have to be careful that you don't create the expectation that you're going to fix everything up in the next 12 months. You need to have realistic steps so that if you say you're going to do something, make sure that you have the resources to be able to deliver it. Um, you know, don't sort of create those expectations that then result in people feeling disappointed or that you talk a lot about animal welfare, but you're actually not doing anything. So again, that's a good way to, um, another good reason for having that phased approach so that you can just test what is realistic. So yes, I and I think, you know, like you mentioned already, the importance of, you know, time dedicated to it. And you also mentioned the budget, right? There, there is obviously you have to prioritize, and I'm I'm still so grateful that you, you know, the 24/7 workshop that that the Professor Hannah Buchanan Smith uh, ran together with your team uh, was part of my first PhD project. And thank you again uh, to you and everybody else at at the zoo for engaging in that. And and that's also part of that workshop, right? Is to look at you know you want to do a lot of things, but that's not possible. But what are the priorities like you talked about earlier and that there is you know time and some budget available to get these things done because as you say otherwise it becomes you know why are we even doing all these you know processes and it all it becomes frustrating and you're not really acting on it so I think those are really valuable lessons and insights you're sharing here so and yeah I, I look forward to hearing a, a few more learning outcomes if you have them for us. Yeah, um, I think it's also really valuable to make sure that people are prepared to do the animal welfare survey. And by that, I mean, go through the questions, explain how the assessments work. Um, in some instances, we have some set assessments. For example, um, there's a question relating to behaviours and we've said that if there's a group of animals that's in a non-breeding situation, the, the assessment for that particular question will be neutral. So there's not discussions that's set, you know, if this is the case, then the response is, you know, 
B, C, D or whatever. So just making it clear around what things are set and not negotiable and then those other things that are open for discussion. Um, so the point that I'm making there is before you launch into the animal welfare survey, take some time to provide information about how it's going to operate, what the questions are, how the assessments occur, and then what the outcomes are and how the information will be used. You know, just so there's clarity and that everyone understands and it, it, the process is truly transparent. Um, yeah, what other <laughs> learning yeah. outcomes? One of the things that you and I talked about um, is also, mm -hmm. you, know, you, you mentioned, you know, the encouragement, the importance of encouraging collaboration with other zoos, like, you know, do we have yeah. similar findings and so on. Can you talk a little bit uh, to how you do that at your facility? Okay, yeah, and it's been interesting too, um, you know, the fact that we have three zoos, sometimes we can compare the findings for the same species if we house that species at multiple properties just to look at what's been going on there and is it the same outcome for each property or are the outcomes different and then trying to drill down and think about what factors are influencing those variations. So, so that's been interesting. I mean, you can probably imagine um, findings that might vary according to, because of the fact that Melbourne Zoo being a city zoo, some of the enclosures or facilities might be smaller than out at Werribee where you've got quite large facilities full of stock. So just the impact on the animal welfare that that might have and the way that that influences the outcomes of the survey. Um, we, we also, as well, um, being a member of our, our regional zoo and aquarium association, ZAR, ZAR also has an accreditation program for its members and that accreditation program is animal welfare based. So I probably shouldn't go into too much detail here because I haven't really thought about this one much, but just thinking about how our animal welfare survey um, when we complete that with it by Zoos Victoria and the results that we gain there and compare it with the results when the Zoo Association has completed the accreditation assessment for Zoos Victoria. And generally speaking, we've found that when the Zoo Association has assessed our exhibits and the animals, they've had a more positive determination or assessment than what we have done internally. So in, in some ways that's quite nice to think that we're pretty, pretty hard on ourselves and we're really striving to improve. You know, we, we are identifying opportunities for improvement rather than going, yep, this is fine. We're happy with it and we'll just leave it as it is. So I'm not sure if that's a, a useful comment to make, but um, I think it's it's a really good reflection. Um, for me, kind of validates our, our process in saying that you know, we've come up with this process internally as an organisation and it's 
the findings are um, in some ways consistent when we've had an external assessor come in and look at our animals. You know, we're certainly not saying that these animals are in likely positive welfare state and then the in independent assessors come in and gone, well, actually, we disagree with that. We think they're in a negative, likely negative welfare state. So it's it's been good to know that um, uh, assessments seem to align quite nicely with, with the independent assessor. Wonderful. And I think it's so important to do to really, you know, like you say, you are you are working with the process, you're trying to also look across, you know, the different parks and working with different people to really look at, is this the right, are we on the right track? Is this the same things people, of course, these are trained uh, assessors, these are not people who don't have a background, but these are people mm -hmm. that are, you know, really validating what it is uh, that you're doing and and giving that feedback. And it's so important, like you say, this continuous improvement. It's not necessarily easy what we're doing. And the process is not, you know, always smooth and we have setbacks or we don't understand something yet, but we are really critically looking at what we do and how we do it. I think, yeah, you've mm -hmm. made so many really important points there. And it's and that's the way uh, this has to be, of course, for us to grow and really learn and understand. Mm -hmm how to care for animals. Yeah. So could you, as we wrap up the podcast, could you give us a few pointers of like what you're doing in the various zoos or what you might've heard in other places as well? Some of the things that organizations can do to actually empower animal care staff specifically. Okay. I think it's also really important that animal welfare is not just the domain of animal care staff again using that analogy of um, staff you know workplace safety it's not just up to I'm not sure what happens in Europe but you know here it's usually the human resource department that looks after workplace safety and the well-being of staff but it's up to every individual staff member to look out for the well-being of their colleagues and to report things like the tripping hazards or you know whatever it is and I think what would well not think at Zoos Victoria we're keen to make sure that every staff member has an understanding of our code of animal welfare and ethics so actually Sabrina I know we're meant to be wrapping up but I've just thought of of a little story around how our code of animal welfare and ethics came to be born. Um, sort of probably nearly 10 years ago, Jenny, Jenny Gray, who is uh, Dr. Jenny Gray, who is Zoo's uh, Victoria's chief executive officer. Um, she said to me that she wanted that animal welfare policy kind of written and so I got our policy guidelines and I crafted this policy for animal welfare and I was quite proud of it and took it in for Jenny to have a look at and read over. And her response, this is not a verbatim response, but it's the spirit of what she said was, this document is really boring. It's not what I want. No one's going to read it. It's the sort of thing that just keepers might read. I want something that every member of staff is going to be able to read and understand. 
and so kind of went away and um, crafted up our first code of animal welfare and ethics. So it's a document with that specific of intent that any member of the organisation can read it and understand it and understand our approach to animal welfare. So critical is that the whole organisation supports animal welfare outcomes. The whole organisation is looking out for the animals in our care. It's not just the animal carers, it's up to the whole organisation to support those animal welfare outcomes. So and that's sort of just, I think something that's really important is, you know, it's up to everyone, not just one aspect of the organisation working in a silo from everyone else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree uh, with that. Obviously, I echo that. That is, is so <laughs> important. And, you know, like you mentioned, you know, um, having the processes in place and, and I love the story you just told. We're always, you know, loving stories um, like, you know, it, it, this is this is boring and and you, <laughs> you go, OK, and I'll I'll keep working on it and, and make it better, making it engaging and make it engaging for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and and specifically also the the aspects that you mentioned of you know making sure there is uh, time to do this that people are you know getting the training and the capacity building that they need and that they know that there is a budget for aspects there are so many of these you know as you're working mm -hmm. together in a team that can all help us empower all of us to do a better job uh, for animals. And, you know, if there's like, we have talked about so many different wonderful yeah. topics and the whole journey. Uh, if there's like one key point you would like listeners to take away from this conversation, then what would that be? Okay, I think just reiterating is if an organization is thinking about doing an animal welfare assessment, really be clear about why you're wanting to do it and what you're going to do with the results and findings. It's simply not enough to go out there and collect information. You have to actually apply that information and you need to make sure that you are working to improve the quality of life for animals in our care. So our goal is that all animals at Zoos Victoria are thriving and have a fantastic quality of life. So I think that's the key. Just really think about why you're doing it, what your motivations are, and how you're going to apply that knowledge. Yes, I love the the why, you know, why are we doing this, you know, and then of course, how are we doing this? But yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that key point. And then of course, because we love animal stories and we already heard uh, some wonderful can we you know conclude the podcast with one um you know six, maybe a success story like how you maybe found out through the assessments and then you made some changes or any any story you like we would love to end on a on a positive animal story um yeah there's there's lots of key ones um, i know we spoke about one earlier sabrina but i'm just thinking of another one which was around, there's, there's heaps of them, but things, for example, like um, deploying animal training to things such as scale training so that we can gain weights of animals 
without the need to catch them up and put them in bags and restrain them and that sort of thing. So there's lots of examples now at Zoo Victoria of animals that have been trained to go on scales, whether it's um, good fellows tree kangaroos to birds that are in mixed species aviaries to, yeah, you know, various primates, all sorts of things. I think um, I heard a, a really nice example of some little legless lizards, Burton's legless lizards they're called, which is an Australian species, which takes some work to get them to feed that required keepers to catch them and hold them and observe them for ages and ages. And through some changes in practices, um, now they don't need to catch the lizards up to feed them. So that's a really lovely outcome. Yeah, there's just so many examples that I'm just trying to think of, of another one. And of course, my mind's gone blank, but, you know, yeah, just seeing how animals use new exhibit furnishings that might have been put in. Or um, recently, we have installed what we call a zip line for a tiger so that we can um, move some meeting a huge chunk of meat and then the tiger is required to do some problem solving and almost hunt and capture that item so just seeing the tiger moving and grabbing that prey it's an incredible thing to see so that's that's a really nice example the zip line for tigers as an animal welfare intervention and I know as soon as we hang up I will think of 20 more <laughs> examples <laughs> We'll just have to, um, which brings me actually then to the idea to, you know, together we will have to come and do another podcast on all kinds of, you know, interventions and care efforts and, you know, um, and collecting all these wonderful um, animal stories. That's just really great. Thank you, Amanda, so much for coming onto the podcast today. Uh, you know, talking really also from a strategic perspective, um, you know, the lean approach, the code ethics, you know, how it drives your decision making in, you know, with regards to the ethics, the humane side, the effective side, you know, the importance of teamwork, you know, the whole organization working, you know, every day for animals and doing the best that you can. I love the idea of the vision board, you know, to keep it at, you know, um, I've lost now the English word, but front and center um, that yeah. you know what you're doing and this is what why we're here um and you know keeping everything in mind and the, the importance of you know dedicating time and thought and and also budgets you know the practicalities of it i really really enjoyed uh, the conversation so thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and i can't wait to get talking to you again about uh, about this and of course you know on the pause platform this month everything is about animal welfare assessment so very grateful to have you uh, today on the podcast. Thank you so again, again, Amanda. Thanks, Sabrina. It's been delightful talking to you and having that opportunity to reflect on our never-ending journey of providing for well-being of animals. Exactly. I love that. That's the perfect description. It's a never-ending journey uh, for, for animals and, of course, uh, for people. Because, of course, mm -hmm. well-being for 
for you, uh, for me, you know, and the animals is of course too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and of course for yourself so that you can be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And really delighted, you know, the PAUSE platform, the Practical Animal Welfare Science platform is the first online platform combining this human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get these educations and tools that you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you're you know, interested to learn more, just follow the link in the podcast description and become a member today.